Let's turn to Romans chapter 6. And we have seen that Paul's logic is that we all need the righteousness of God in order to be in his presence. We all have surrendered the righteousness of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's a problem, a big problem, a cosmic problem. A problem that leads to destruction of us as sinners and rebels against God. And we've seen how this applies to everybody, those who have heard the gospel and those who have not heard the gospel, those who have been brought up in a covenant home and those who are far away from that, those who have striven one way or another to live a religious life and those who have been completely dissolute and corrupt. All of them are under the judgment of God because all have far, fallen short of God's perfect standard. So Paul establishes that in the first two and a half chapters. But then he says, but now, in 321, now a righteousness has been revealed from heaven apart from the law, apart from keeping God's law, apart from moral performance. There's a, a righteousness that has been revealed to us, and it's the righteousness that comes through faith. So we put our faith in Jesus Christ and his righteousness is given to us in toto. Our sins are applied to him. So he died on the cross for all of our sins. We simply by trusting in him gain the merits of all of his righteousness. And then Paul asked the question in Romans 4, what about the Old Testament? Do they believe this in the Old Testament? He's speaking to a lot of the Jews there in the Roman church and he says, this is the real Old Testament faith. You just misunderstood it. And he goes back and he shows how he quotes from, from David, but he especially shows how Father Abraham, the epitome of righteousness in the Jewish mind, Abraham was justified through faith alone. So he shows that clearly in Romans 4. And then in Romans 5, he says, this has massive implications. Because if you've been justified by faith, you now have the hope of the glory of God. And all of your sufferings and persecutions are in order to achieve something absolutely wonderful in your life. These, so these sufferings are producing something in your life, character and hope, perseverance. And then he showed in the latter part of chapter 5 that how this mechanism worked, this mechanism of imputation, that on one hand, Adam uh, fell in, on behalf of all of us. So in Adam, we all die. And by the same mechanism, Jesus Christ, the second Adam, lives a righteous life, and in him we have righteousness. So in Adam, by nature, we're under condemnation because we are sinful. We're in Adam. But when we're in Christ, then we have his righteousness. By the same me mechanism by which we inherited our, our guilt, we inherit righteousness through faith. Then Paul, as you know, comes to Romans 6. And he asked what we've seen is the illogical, logical question. It makes sense for an unconverted man to ask the question, well, if that's the mechanism, that something's already been done for me and I already have all my righteousness and I can't earn it. It's just given to me as a gift. Well, come on, pass the babes, pass the drink, pass, you know, just let me lie, cheat and steal and just get ahead in the world and all I have to do is just trust in Jesus and there's no problem. That's the kind of question that's being asked. Doesn't this lead 
to antinomianism. In other words, doesn't this lead to an anti-law behavior? That's the question Paul's addressing in Romans 6. He can hear the Romans asking that question because it's an illogical, logical question. Now, we saw last week that what's illogical about this logical question is that it doesn't take into account a major reality, which is those who have been justified, who have truly trusted in Jesus Christ and received his righteousness are people who have been born again. And they've been born again because the only way in which they're either justified or born again is that they're brought into union with Christ. They're baptized into Christ. So our water baptism symbolizes something very important, that we're engrafted, we're, we're washed. The baptism uh, represents washing by the Holy Spirit, but it also represents being engrafted, baptized into someone. We saw in 1 Corinthians 10, the Israelites were baptized into Moses, into his ministry, into his leadership. So whatever Moses, blessing comes to Moses, comes to those who are baptized into Moses. And by the same token, in the New Testament, we're baptized into Christ. And so whatever blessings Christ receives, whatever he earned, it's ours because we're baptized into Christ. By virtue of that union with Christ, then, we have a new nature. And this is the reason that the otherwise logical question becomes illogical. Because if you've been justified, you've also been regenerated. If you've been regenerated... Why would you tell me you want to go out there and break every law of God and get by with it? You don't want to do that. You have a new nature. The new nature wants to seek God, wants to know him, wants to be like him. Now, of course, as Paul explains vividly in Romans 7, we still have indwelling, flesh, uh, indwelling sin. We have our flesh. We're still fighting the battle. And there are days when, and moments and they happen every day when we don't want to do the law of God and we have to discipline ourselves. We understand this. But fundamentally, in the headquarters of your being, you have a new manager and you have a new nature. You have, you have the flesh that's battling, but it's not in headquarters. It's in the extremities. That's the reason he calls it the members. It's in your members, but it's not headquarters. It's not heart. So you have a new heart. So... When you get a new status of righteousness, Paul says you also get a new nature. That's what makes that question of antinomianism illogical. So that's his first argument in the first part of Romans 6. It's a very powerful argument. So you can understand from a non-Christian point of view why someone would say Christian theology leads to antinomianism. It leads to a dissolute life because you can just get by with murder. That's, that's a question from a non-regenerate point of view. The regenerate person realizes, no, I've fallen in love. You're telling me that because my wife tells me ahead of time that if I commit adultery, she'll forgive me, that I'm going to go out and commit adultery. No way, Jose. That, that forgiveness she offers me is all the more reason why I love her. All the more reason why I would never want to shame her or myself or humiliate our family by committing adultery. The more grace she gives me, the more, the more indebted I am to her. So this is, see, this is, the, this is logical logic. This is regenerate logic. And that's what Paul's teaching them. You're asking the question from an unconverted or an unregenerate point of view. And from that point of view, we see what you're saying. That's the reason I'm addressing this question. But when you look at it from a regenerate point of view, 
you get a quite different answer. Now, Paul goes on now in our text today to give us another analogy. In the first analogy he gives us, it has to do with what God has done for us. He has baptized us into Christ. He has given us union with Him. He has given us new birth. He has sovereignly, we shall say monergistically, that is with one energy, He has monergistically done some things for us. But now Paul's going to go into another analogy that involves something you do and helps us understand why antinomianism is not something we'd be interested in because it's something we do. So let's take a look at it. And he uses the analogy of slave and master. And let's see how he puts it beginning with uh, verse 15. And he asks fundamentally the same sort of question. He says, what then are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. And here he, he asks this question of ignorance again. Don't you know or hadn't you heard are you a knucklehead? You know, it's, he's, he's saying, did you not hear this in first grade Sunday school? Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Now, we know that there are people who profess to be Christians who are not converted and who therefore are either uh, uh, self-righteous and pretending and image-managing all the time or they're just living a devilish life that's more dissolute like the pagan would. We know in either of those two cases with an unregenerate person, they are going to be judged at the end. They're going to pay for every one of their sins and for their sin nature. So pretending to be a Christian through giving a few gifts or going to church every once in a while or even a Bible study or saying that you're a Christian or even evangelizing other people. If you're not genuinely converted, you'll face the judgment of God for everything that you've done wrong. So God doesn't have the wool pull up, pulled over his eyes. Paul's really here addressing people who may be converted. And so even those men who have a new nature struggle with this. Even men who have a new nature will ever once in a while just kind of look around and say, well, would it 
would it matter if I just look at a little bit of pornography? I mean, I'll turn it off afterwards. And I, I'll try not to do it for another couple of weeks, you know, or something. Uh, or, you know, <clears throat> it, it's Uncle Sam. What does he care if I cheat on my taxes? And we can come up with all kinds of excuses to do this. Or, you know, I'd lose my job if I didn't tell that lie. And we have these little moments when we, we're illogically logical. Paul's addressing those kinds of situations where you, your converted self, you were able to begin to rationalize about, well, you know, he's going to forgive me, so you know, that grace may abound all the more. I'll just go ahead and commit this sin and trust in Jesus. He's talking to us. We, those who are unconverted, their pretensions get them nowhere. For those of us who are sons of God, here's the logical logic. And he puts it this way. He says in, in verses 15 and 16, Roman numeral number one, grace is a new master. You have a new master in the household of your heart. He's ruling over you. When you become a Christian, you are transferred into a kingdom with a king who is a master. He's powerful. He rules over all. And you have dedicated yourself to him. First of all, A, you can see that this has the effect of outlawing sin. Grace outlaws sin. It doesn't allow sin. It outlaws it. Paul is saying, do you think that what I just taught you about justification by faith alone allows you to go sin freely? Just the opposite. You missed the whole story. It completely outlaws your sinful behavior. You've not been thinking right. You've not heard everything I have to say about this. Now, once again, we saw last time that from the illogical, logical point of view, from an unconverted point of view, the explanation of justification by faith alone leads one naturally to ask this question. Doesn't that lead to more sin? But Paul is saying, you know the whole story. It's not just your forensic, your legal status. It's your spiritual nature that got changed as well. So it outlaws sin. Only the grace of the gospel can kill sin. If you try, we'll, we'll see this in Romans 7 uh, next week and, and after Christmas. If you try to conquer sin through just simple moralistic behavior, you're never going to win the battle. It's so often like, like an alcoholic who... Uh, is addicted to his alcohol and doesn't realize that there are underlying issues in his life that have led to that addiction. So he deals with the addiction of alcohol. But before you know it, he's addicted to something else. Just watch him. If he doesn't deal with the underlying issues that were compelling his alcoholism, he's just going to latch on to some other addiction. Sometimes it's AA meetings. Uh, I mean, I'm all for AA meetings, but sometimes that becomes your righteousness. Uh, or I know, I know a woman who, who went off to get in, in, inpatient care for her depression, and she came back and she said, you know, the psychological care that I got, that's my salvation. I said, no, honey, that's not your salvation. That, that was very important and very helpful. That's not your salvation. You're facing something a whole lot worse than depression. I'm telling you what, if you don't uh, get your real salvation, so we can just go from one addiction to another. And usually it's a self-righteous addiction. You know, if I've conquered alcohol or if I've conquered this, that, or the other, then I'm really proud about it. Now I'm addicted to myself. 
So the only way in which we can be liberated really is by the grace of God, being loved by God, realizing that we have nothing to contribute to our justification but the sin that made it necessary, and even our regeneration is a gift from him. So everything was initiated by him. We owe him our lives, and then we receive his power and his help, his love. That's the way in which sin is ultimately conquered. It's through love and gratitude. And this is what the apostle is showing us. Now, secondly, in 16, verse 16, you'll see that everybody does have a master. He says, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone, you are the slaves of the one uh, of whom you obey? So if you present yourself to obey someone, you become their slaves. And certainly, back to the alcoholic, you end up being the, the slave of the bottle, It's amazing. You think you're enjoying the alcohol, and before you know it, the alcohol's got control of you. You think that you're enjoying being successful and pursuing, you know, a a big estate, and before long you realize that estate's got you around the neck, and it's controlling you, and your desire for success is ruining your life and your relationships. So you give yourself to it, and then it takes control of you. It's that way with everything. Whenever you present yourself to serve that cause or to serve that person or to serve that virtue, you become that thing or that person's slave. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying here. First of all, he says, either of sin, which leads to death. So sin. As a sinner, you choose to submit yourself as a slave to sin. And as a matter of fact, in the case of sin, that decision was already made for you by Adam and Eve. You were born into a sinful family. When I was born, I got the name Wilson. I didn't, I didn't come up with that name. <laughs> if I had come up with it, I wouldn't be spelling it with two L's, I'll tell you that. <laughs> but I, I was born into it, I just got it. You know, I just given to me. Well, I'll tell you what else I got. I got a sinful nature. And I'm just like my daddy and just like my mama and just like my grandparents. And uh, I was old enough to watch their behavior. Oh yeah, okay, I'm just like them. Yeah, we're all sinners, and I could, I could trace my lineage all the way back. And you know what I found in my, in my lineage? Sinners, 100%, and I'm just like them. So I bear their likeness. And guess what? Your family heritage is the same way, and you're all slaves. You're all slave families. Just like in the 19th century in America, You're born into a slave family, you're a slave. You didn't choose that. You wouldn't choose it for yourself if you're in your your right mind. Just born into it. And Paul says, you're slaves. Nobody likes to be told they're a slave. Have you noticed that? Look with me in Romans 8. Keep your finger in in Romans. I'm not Romans 8. I'm sorry, John 8. Keep your finger in Romans 6. And see what Jesus said to Jews. Jews. These are religious people who thought they were Just because they were born into the Jewish family, they were God's people. That's what they thought, and they were wrong. Jesus says to him in verse 31 of John 8, this is page 2040. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, look at this, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? How quickly 
these Jewish folks forget. You remember Egypt? That was not that long ago, just 1,500 years ago. You've forgotten that already. You were slaves in Egypt. God delivered you out of slavery. You're telling me you were never slaves of anyone. Oh, you see how pride takes over? Oh, we, you could you run my family back for, for at least three years and you won't find any slaves there. Uh, and, but you see what, how Jesus answered. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave, a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So he's saying to the Jews, you were born a slave. And if you remain a slave, you will not remain in the house of God, even if you're Jewish. The only ones who are going to remain are sons. You've got to be a son. And the son believes the truth. And that truth sets him free. It's the truth, of course, of the gospel. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I've seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. So he's saying, if you're a son, which means that's the only way to be free and to live forever in the house of God, when you hear the word of God, you obey it. That's what sons do, sons of God. You're not doing that. Therefore, I know you're not sons no matter what religious underwear you have on. I know what you are. So no one pulls the wool over God's eyes. He knows the nature of men. And he knows if you've given your heart to him. And he says, if you haven't, you're a slave. So what, what Paul is saying to the Romans, regardless of your religious background, you've got to understand that you were born into enslavement to sin. Or, he says, verse 16c, of obedience which leads to righteousness. So when we are converted, he's saying that what we do is we surrender ourselves as slaves to another master. Now we're going to look at how this differs. This kind of slavery differs from slavery to sin. It's very different. But the principle he's saying is that everybody has a master. Everybody's a slave in one way or another. You're either a slave to injustice a slave to, to racism, a slave to greed, a, a, a slave to, to pride, or you're a slave to God and to the righteous commands of his law and a slave to obedience and to righteousness. And you, you, you only have two choices. That's what he's saying. And whichever way you go, you submit yourself as a, slave to one or the other. That's the very nature of being a human being. And you may not think of yourself this way, but Paul is setting us up to understand what the gospel has done for us, okay? So now, secondly, Roman numeral number two, in verses 17 through 19, we see that Christians have specifically become the slaves of righteousness. We have transferred from one master to the other. Now, Paul is going to show us, first of all, how this has been done definitively. We all know that as we spend time growing and developing as Christian men, we increasingly become more like Jesus Christ. I mean, you get to the end of the day after 
80 or 90 years of life, you still have a long way to go. You still have to be completely transformed in glorification to enter his presence. But you have been growing to be more and more like Jesus Christ. But it begins with a definitive set-apartness, a definitive sanctification. See how Paul puts it in verse 17. But thanks be to God. But thanks be to God. We, we, we could be enslaved to sin, but thanks be to God for what? That you who once were slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and have been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. He's saying something dramatic happens at your conversion. Now, turn, leave your finger there and turn uh, to the next book in the Bible, which is 1 Corinthians, and look at chapter 6 with me. And notice in verse 9 how Paul puts this. Now, normally when we think of the word sanctification, we think of something that happens progressively. I'm progressively, increasingly growing in holiness. And that, that happens. If you're alive, you're just like a, any live plant or animal, you actually grow. You get stronger. And the same is true with Christians. We have what we call progressive sanctification. But Paul here is talking about definitive sanctification. There is a sense in which you're completely sanctified in this sense. The word sanctified means to set apart. So you're progressively in every area of your life, setting apart your family life, your business life, your, your speech, your action, your community service, your evangelism. In every way, you're progressively being set apart in your life practically for God. But there's also a sense in which you are once and for all definitively completely set apart when you're converted. And that's what Paul's talking about here. So look at 1 Corinthians 6, you get a good example of it. In verse 9 he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, if I stopped right there, all of Amen Bible study would just empty out. What's the use? <laughs> but notice what he says here. He says, and such were some of you, were some of you. So in his church in Corinth, he's got people who, are, who committed adultery, fornication, uh, homosexually active people, drunkards, swindlers, slanderers, greedy people, prideful people. Church was full of them. But he puts it in the past tense. So you know, that's no longer your name. Okay, you committed adultery, but you're not an adulterer. You were homosexually active, but you're not a homosexually, you're not a homosexual person. That's not how you label yourself. How do you label yourself? That's how you used to label yourself or other people would label yourself. He said, such were some of you. But look here again, he says, but, don't you love the word but? But you were washed. You were sanctified, past tense. So you were cleansed and you were set apart. Definitively, it's already been done. It's like, 
uh, sacramentally when we baptize our infants in the Presbyterian church. You Baptists are saying, now why do you do that? Get kids not old enough to know whether they believe in Jesus or not. We understand that. But the way that we see baptism, once again, they're washed with the water, they're set apart. Even though we don't, we're not sure they're regenerate. Set apart for what? Sacramentally set apart to be worshipers. So we train them how to worship, even before we know if they're regenerate or not. So our children are to be worshipers, and they're set apart in baptism for that purpose. So physically, they're a physically part of us in the body, and they're trained to be worshipers, say the Lord's Prayer, sing the hymns, before they show signs of regeneration, or even maybe before they are regenerated. But that's only sacramentally. Here, what Paul is saying that really, in the life of a Christian, that has happened to you, a definitive setting apart to be the slave of the master, uh, of the master God himself. You were washed, you were justified, uh, sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So here you see that Paul uses in this context sanctification in the past tense just like he does justification. So there are two different ways to look at sanctification, definitively and progressively. Now, in, in Reformed or Presbyterian circles, we normally use the word sanctification in the progressive sense. I'm only saying there is another sense that's very important. We need to be aware of it, and Paul speaks of it here. He says, thanks be to God, you who once were slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to God. You've been set apart for that purpose. So you've been definitively converted. Secondly, he mentions that you have been continually made the slaves of God. I'm speaking in human terms, he says, verse 19, because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity, you once went up to the bottle and said, take me, ravish me. You once went up to the adulterer and said, let's have fun, I'm yours. You once went up to business and said, whatever it takes to make the most in the least amount of time, I'm yours. That's what you used to do, he says. But now, uh, uh, and it was leading to more lawlessness. So now, he says, he challenges them. Present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. Now, here's where the commandment is. So you can see in the Christian faith, you have a description of what's already been done for us, what's being done for us right now, and then you have a commandment. But you're never given a commandment. Without, told, without being told what God has already done for you and what he'll do for you now to enable you to keep the commandment. If you think about, for example, the Ten Commandments, how do those start? Do you remember when we studied Exodus and we were in chapter 20 and we noticed right from the beginning, before God gives them the Ten Commandments, he reminds them of what he's done for them. He's delivered them out of Egypt. He's carried them on eagles' wings to Mount Sinai. He's protected them and fed them along the way. And he is with them. Then he says, let there be no other gods before you. Cut out the idolatry. Obey your parents. Stop coveting your neighbor's possessions. All of that because I have done these things for you. Paul's saying the same thing here. Thanks be to God, you've been definitively sanctified. Now, let's fight the fight. And it is a fight. It's a fight we can win because of what God has done for us and what he's doing for us right now and the hope of glory that he gives us in the future. 
So let's fight the fight. And how do you do it? He says, present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Let me give you this analogy. You know, at the end of the Civil War, uh, we had the 13th Amendment, thanks be to God. And uh, if you saw the movie on Abraham Lincoln, you saw some of the drama that was there with that. It's a wonderful thing. And then we, of course, 100 years later, have a major civil rights movement that allows us to experience more of the freedoms that our laws said we should have had 100 years ago and that the law of God says we should have had from the very founding of our country, which we didn't have, the founding of our country. But you remember that before the Civil War was over, in January, January the 1st, 1863, what did Lincoln do? An executive order, a lot of discussion now about executive orders, but Lincoln issued an executive order, didn't go through Congress, called the Emancipation Proclamation. So in all the states that were in rebellion against the federal government, on January 1st, all those slaves were freed. Now, did they all get their freedom? No. Uh, some of them were detained by their masters. Some of them, frankly, they'd gotten kind of used to slavery. And you know, even after the Civil War, some of the slaves didn't leave, leave slavery. Why? Well, we get used to slavery. It's like, you know, an abused woman. If she was abused as a child, what kind of husband does she normally marry? An abusive husband. It's just amazing. You would think, logically, if someone's experienced a tragedy of being abused as a child, the last thing in the world they're going to do and the first thing they're going to notice is the abuse of a man. And the last thing they're going to do is marry him. But no, it's just the other way around. We see this all the time. It's the dysfunction of the broken human spirit. So Paul is saying, look, you all were enslaved by a tyrannical monster. You grew up as abused children. And your habit is to go back to an abusive master. And it just befuddles the daylights out of me. And I watch you keep doing it, he says. This, this is the Sandy Wilson translation of Romans 6. He says, I'm watching you do this. Now listen to me, you former slaves, he's saying. You've got a kind and gracious master. So just walk over to him and tell him all your problems and you submit yourself to Him, and you'll be amazed at how well your life is going to go. You've got a gracious Master. You've been bought by Him. You belong to Him. Imagine this, that you've, you're a slave on a plantation in Mississippi in the 19th century, and your slave master is a, is a monster. And, and the slightest little disobedience or word of complaint, and you get, a, you get a lashing on your back. And this has been going on since you were a teenager. You've been abused by that master for years. And then there's a new plantation owner right next to your plantation where you're a slave. And that master notices what's going on over on your plantation with your master. And he says to your master, I'd like to buy that slave. Well, you do? Well, you want to buy that slave? He's not worth anything. I know, I'm just, I just want to buy him. And he says, how much? And he gives him an exorbitant price. And this master, this next door master, buys you anyway. So you go over to his, you go over to his plantation, and he takes you under the, the maple tree, and he says, son, I want to tell you something now. You've been abused all your life. I'm never going to do that to you. 
I'm going to treat you right. And not only will you get a day's pay, pay for a day's work, but by the time you reach majority age, this whole plantation is going to be yours. I'm giving it to you. And you're going to be an owner. And you're going to be free. And you're sitting here, you just can hardly believe what you're hearing. But he's made these unbelievable promises to you. So you're out there working on the plantation, and you're over near the border of where your old master was. And you can still hear his voice, and he's still talking to you. Hey, you, come over here. It's about time for you to get another whipping. What you doing over there? And you start to shrink. That voice, you can feel the lashes on your back the moment he opens his voice, and you start to shrink. And you have to ask yourself, why are you shrinking? Why are you listening to him? Why is he having any effect on you? This one who is master became your father. And he promised to give you everything. You've got his protection. He paid an enormous price for you. He owns you. But he's treating you like a member of the family because you are. And that Paul, what Paul is saying is that's what's happened to you. You just got delivered out of a tyrannical, hellish plantation. And you've been, you got brought over here to a world that you, in which you were made a son, and the master says, you're going to be my son, not my slave. And Paul says, why are you going back to that? Why are you listening to that rubbish? Why are you allowing that to affect your behavior? All he wants to do is to put more lashes on your back and destroy your life and eat your lunch and use you and abuse you. It makes no sense. The Apostle Paul is saying, present yourself as slaves to righteousness because this is where all the glory is. This is where love is. This is where your, your self-interest is. So he is saying, yes, we're definitively converted, but we must be continually converted. Now in verse 20, Roman numeral number 3, Paul makes it clear you can only have one master. And doesn't Jesus say the same thing? You know, in, in, you can, if you want to turn with me to Matthew 6, you'll see that Jesus teaches this in verse 24. He says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon or money. You can't. Have Jesus Christ as your master and also have mammon or worldly things as your master? You can't have an agenda of acquiring all that you can possibly acquire as your goal in life and also have God as your master. It's just not going to work. You can't have the adulteresses as your lovers and have Jesus Christ as your lover. He doesn't sleep with adulterers. You've got to make a choice. Paul's saying there's a fork in the road, and as Yogi Berra said, when you come to the fork in the road, take it. And Paul is saying, take the right fork. It's Yogi Berra Plus. So you can't have both forks in the road. You've got to take one or the other. Because Jesus said, you're going to despise the other one. Because these two are in absolute conflict. So if you, if you try to flirt with this one, to the degree that you do that, everything over here despises that behavior. If you go over here, everything in that old tyrannical master despises what you're doing. And Paul is saying you're much better off being despised by the devil than being despised by God. 
So we have only one master possible. Now, lastly, look at verses 21 through 23. And here Paul shows the outcomes. He says, our work yields fruit. The contrast couldn't be sharper, gentlemen. He says, first of all, in verse 21, sin sin yields shame and death. But what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. What is the fruit of lying? What is the fruit of cheating somebody out of out of money that was rightfully theirs or even graciously theirs? What's the fruit of being abusive and having your angry temper tantrums? What's the fruit of that? What does it feel like afterwards when you've just blessed out somebody and you know you were wrong, you're intemperate? What's the fruit of that? Paul says it's shame. We're ashamed of our behavior. What's the fruit of being unkind to your wife? You know the fruit of it. What's the fruit of of sexual immorality, you know the fruit of it. What's the fruit of drunkenness? It's a hangover and a wasted day and the shame that goes with it of just the complete irresponsibility. What's the fruit of taking the Lord's name in vain, of using His name as though it's just an adjective instead of the holy name of God? What's the fruit of that? It's shame. And ultimately what what the apostle says is that kind of lifestyle is on a road to go somewhere and it's going to death and destruction. It's going to judgment. Get off that road. Have nothing to do with it. You can see from the fruit of it, it leads nowhere good. I remember, uh, uh, you know, I was converted at 25. So uh, I remember uh, when I was a student at University of Virginia. And by the way, <clears throat> at Virginia, I remember there was an article, I think it was in Time Magazine, Uh, This would be, of course, 1969. There was an article ranking universities in terms of how wild their parties were. And I don't remember the whole order, but I remember the asterisk at the bottom of the list. It had an asterisk, and it said, the University of Virginia is not rated because we don't rate professionals. Uh, (laughs) That's the the university I went to. And so I was engaged in all that. And I'll never, I'll never forget the sensation of partying, you know, Friday night, getting up on Saturday, and as soon as you can get going, you start partying on Saturday. And then I remember just walking down Rugby Road, where all the fratern- a lot of the fraternity houses are, on Sunday morning after you get up with your hangover, and you're just walking down Rugby Road and just looking at the throw-up everywhere and all the smells and the sights and the mud and the trash and... That's a picture. I'll never forget that picture, even as an unconverted man. I realized this leads nowhere good. It's just a trash heap. And all the stuff that we do to violate the law of God, it just leads to complete destruction. It's just ugly. Why even participate in it? Why have anything to do with that industry? It's a corrupt industry, the industry of sin. So just be done with it and encourage others to come the same way. In the same way, he says, let's look at what the other yields. Look at verses 22 and 23. He says, these once again, these glorious words. Look at verse 22. But now. But now. Yeah, doesn't that remind you of something? Doesn't that remind you of Romans 3.21? Your justification is a but now. And your sanctification is a but now. This is logical logic. In the same way that you were under wrath and condemnation, but now 
you're under acceptance and righteousness and justification, and you have a legal standing of righteousness before God. Declared by the angels, you are righteous. But now, you're righteous in Jesus Christ. In the same way, you were living a certain life that leads to eternal death and destruction. But now, look at you. You're on the road to life. And Paul is showing us that, that our work will yield fruit, that our lifestyle will yield fruit, that our, the path we're walking on is going somewhere. It's going to Zion, the city of God. It's not going to hell and destruction. He says, but now you have been set free from this bondage, this sin, and you have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to holiness. Now here, the word sanctification means progressive sanctification. Why? Because he's saying that putting yourself under the service of God, becoming his slave, leads to something. doesn't come from something. It comes from your definitive sanctification, but it leads to your progressive sanctification. So when you present yourself to God as a slave, which is what you do in your conversion, and you continue to be converted every day, if you will, you're presenting yourself every day, every moment. You continue to present yourself to him. Lord, I'm at your service. I'm your servant. I'm your slave. Do with me as you will. And he graciously takes you as his son and leads and coaches you as a son, cares for you, and leads you into the path of sanctification. This is how it works. You just submit yourself to him. That's the reason we speak so much of surrendering to the Lord. You submit to your master and it leads to sanctification and its end the end of verse 22, eternal life. You end up with a blessed life forever and ever and ever. That's where this road goes. Stay on that road, brothers. That's, that's what Paul is saying. Make a decision and stick with your decision. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. He says, this is the reason that your question is actually an illogical question. Shall we not sin that grace will abound? No, because grace abounds on this other road. And when you received your justification, you received a new master, a new road with new fruit in your life. That's the reason that not only in Romans 1.1, but in Philippians and Titus and other places. Here's how Paul describes himself. Not only as a follower of Jesus, not only as an apostle, but he says, and a slave of God. Now the ESV will translate it servant of God, but it's the same word for slave. Paul brags on being a slave of God. We're slaves of God. And in his grace, he has made his slaves his sons. Welcome to the family. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the power and the wonder of our salvation. Thank you for what you've done in us and for us even before we were born. Thank you for what you've, you're doing with us, in us, and through us now. Thank you for the privilege that you give us of walking with you consciously and intentionally. We pray that you'll help us to learn how not to present ourselves to the tyrannical master of evil. 
and how to present ourselves and the members of our bodies to you, our glorious Father, our Master, our Ruler, our King. Take us, Lord, and use us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.